You're listening to Paz de Chipotle, the show that will take you to discover the edible treasures of Mexico. Episode 13. Hello, wonderful listeners. Welcome to this episode of Paz de Chipotle, the audible companion of Sabor, This is Mexican Food, a digital magazine dedicated to exploring the markets, streets, recipes and traditions that make Mexico an edible paradise. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food historian, cook and author. To find more information about the show, please go to pazdechipotle.com. Find the show on Twitter as Chipotle Podcast. This week's episode features a great interview with New Yorker chef Sean Horrell, who joined me all the way from Newcastle in the northeast of England, where he proudly recreates the most classic flavors of Mexican street food. Hardcore globetrotter and trained chef turned master taquero, Sean Horrell was born in New York, but spent his early infancy in the sunny west coast of America, in California, then moved to Australia and back to America in Colorado. Like many chefs who push their creative boundaries and travel the world finding inspiration in the most unassuming places, he transitioned from a rather classic and quite off-market restaurant environment to redefine what he really felt passionate about and what kind of gastronomic experience he wanted to offer the world. In this interview, Chef Horrell shared how his career evolved across continents and how the memorable culinary experiences he had as a child and as a young adult will be seminal in finding a true inspiration to develop the concept for his current restaurant. Throughout the initial phase of his career, Sean understood the importance of sourcing the best produce from local farmers and craft producers, but as a young chef, he really had a niche to join the ever so alluring world of haute cuisine, and he moved to England where he joined two Michelin star restaurants, one of celebrity chef Marcus Waring and the other St. John's, from the world-acclaimed chef Fergus Henderson, responsible for bringing back the tradition of nose-to-tail cooking. It was after traveling for so long and perfecting his craft with rigor and precise technique that Chef Horrell decided to start his own business along with a family of his own. Returning to his culinary roots, he took inspiration from his childhood and teenage memories when back in America he ate hearty and delicious Mexican food that Mexican immigrants still famously prepare and sell. An immigrant himself, he now is the proud owner of the very successful Barrio Comida, a Mexican taqueria in the post-industrial city of Newcastle, the northeast of England. Newcastle might not strike everybody as a culinary hub. It is, however, one of the most culturally and economically significant cities in Britain. Once a thriving powerhouse of the Industrial Revolution, Newcastle was a city of technological innovation and huge economic power. Today, this feisty city 
keeps reinventing itself, powered by the hard work of its ever-growing, diverse cultural society in which delicious tacos have their rightful place. I hope you enjoy this episode. Sean, uh, finally, welcome to the show. It's a great pleasure to have you here. I really appreciate the effort of adjusting time zones and diaries to have you on the show all the way from Newcastle in England. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, Sean, um, well, being you such a well-traveled man and even a better connoisseur of world foods, I think you might agree with me that is um, fair to talk now of a new and exciting world trend in which well-accomplished uh, trained chefs, like yourself, of course, are paying a well-deserved homage to humble street food and uh, Mexican food specifically, uh, in your case. You know, I guess like to put it in the words of um, Chef Ludo Lefebvre, returning to the humble essence of like hearty, honest, rich um, food. Well, it's really all about um, less frou-frou and more focusing on providing a good experience uh, for the customers. Now, Sean, um, we know very well that Mexican street food might seem highly casual and even improvised to the untrained eye. But as you well know, it's not about just tossing ingredients together, squeeze some lime on top and calling it a Mexican. So I really would like you to share with the audience of the show how did your background in North Cuisine helped you understand and recreate the same complex vibrancy and flavors of traditional uh, Mexican street food? Um, well, I think um, I've always probably been pretty inquisitive, I think, with like whatever I'm doing food-wise. And I really like kind of geeking out on specific things. When I, when I used to work in um, in like kind of classical French kitchens, I remember going on a sauce section and then just kind of spending a year on sauce and just like completely engrossing yourself in that and reading and researching and trying and just like mucking about with it, I guess, to kind of get to grips with it, but focusing on individual things. And that's why I think I've really enjoyed, you know, I've only been doing this a couple of years, but doing the conceptual things of trying to do Mexican food, basically, or trying to do it justice and researching things and then trying to um, figure it out. I think just any of that kind of like attention to detail and like careful sourcing, that it is what's at the heart of any of those kind of high-end kitchens. But most Mexican restaurants in England, especially until recently, they wouldn't really put too much effort into that. So that's what we try to look at, like the small details and, and buying really, really good products and stuff. So we're still kind of using the, the ethos of a, of a really high-end Michelin kitchen, but we're doing it in a very casual way. That is fascinating, um, listening to you, and I'm just thinking you're pretty much using all your very methodical skills to do something that very few people outside the world of professional cooking will actually think of approaching Mexican food with, with such a precision and, well, methodology, no? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the way we present things isn't like mega, well, some things are a little bit precise, but I like things to look quite natural, but... I quite like hidden effort in things, you know, where so where something like a mole sauce or something where, where if someone's never had it before, I mean, to be honest, it's like it's it's bittersweet to some people's taste and some people here love it and some people don't like it. But I think it's nice to have there's a lot of skill that goes into making that in the kitchen. But then on a plate, it's like a piece of chicken covered in sauce and that's it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I do know very well exactly what you mean. Yeah. And, uh 
cause the, the effort of really explaining what Mexican food is and what is in front of you. It's really down to people like you precisely, no? Who are putting all that effort behind it. And I suppose in a way people like me, we're, from different ends, we're uh, presenting the depth uh, behind this, no? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and it's still like a total learning experience for me. I mean, I'm just kind of teaching myself as I go and just, just through researching and reading and stuff. And yeah, it's exciting for me. I like it. Yeah. It's good. Um, well, you know, I have to say that, uh, learning from your background, really, I'm not particularly surprised that you chose, uh, to distance yourself from the more formal and highly technical type of cooking, but also the, the kind of environment that fine dining is. And, not that there's anything mm-hmm. wrong with it. I mean, obviously, you've um, used all those skills to, to bring it to your new project, but you've embraced a completely new, different uh, business model with a less tight and, and probably a different environment to a much more democratic and accessible type of food, setting aside the fact that your taqueria, Barrio Comida, is a business, of course, and has to serve its purpose <laughs> to be profitable. I really want to know exactly like what did you find in, in fast food that made you cross sides? And let me rephrase that. What has Mexican street food given you that you didn't get elsewhere? I think the um, basically, I think w- when I was working in like the kind of high end Michelin kitchens, I found that most of my friends either didn't want to eat there or they couldn't afford to eat there really. And it, it kind of like that didn't really sit right with me. You know, like I remember working in like kind of two star kitchens and, and the chefs in the kitchens would have to save months to be able to board one meal at the place that they worked at. And then the people that you were kind of cooking for people that you had nothing in common with and people who a lot of the times they were just kind of eating there to check it off a list or eating there because they're a millionaire and they, that's just where they eat, you know? It's just like it's dinner for them. So I wanted to cook for people that are like me and people that are that aren't super well off and that don't have loads of money. And in, in England, there's still a, quite a big gap in this kind of mid-range food of where this kind of food that has a lot of love and attention paid to it, but it's not going to cost you loads of money. And then you kind of get a lot of big chains doing cheap things and then a lot of really fine dining places doing kind of good things, but they're obviously very expensive. So I wanted to do something that's kind of gastronomic in a way but without being super expensive to people. It's still like accessible and affordable to your average punter. I mean, I, I do believe that Mexican food or the way Mexican food is eaten in Mexico, street food specifically, the social experience of it has a very different take as to what food means and how it's consumed mm-hmm. in other countries. Specifically, like in Britain, people see or perceive mm-hmm. food as fuel, really. I mean, and it's not a criticism. Mm-hmm. It, uh, uh, it, it just is. It happens. And of course, this has been changing. Yeah. Have you sort of perceive that now that you are introducing this concept of enjoying like really high quality but affordable food, how, what's the response you've got? Um, yeah, I think most people are really up for it. They, re- they really enjoy it. It's, you know, it's, it's like still a learning process for, for, for everyone and for the customer and stuff too. I think, you know, I, w- I would say about, 70% of the people who come in need a taco with a knife and fork. So, mm. you know, there's, there's, there's still, uh, barriers to cross, definitely. But in general, I think, I think, I think people like it. The hardest, the hardest issue I find is the mentality that kind of the chain restaurants have put on, um, the consumer. Like, I don't know how, how food should be and how, like, how big a menu should be and how cheap a menu should be and how fast that menu should get to you. And, 
you know, that's a little bit distressing, I think. So that's kind of something that we're fighting against, I think. But it's a process. It's not going to happen overnight. So. Well, no. And, and you have chosen uh, the slowest path because you were pioneering on that. And um, I'm sure history will yeah. repay you. We'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> you know, there's something I'm dying to, to ask. And that, that's who showed you the secrets of the art of taco making so pray tell us all well yeah i mean i didn't have any um haven't had any um sensei to say (laughs) but um i I don't know i I grew up in california and so i kind of grew up eating mexican food on a regular basis my best friend was mexican and i remember his grandma kind of making tortillas outside and stuff and so like i think that was kind of a thing that was just kind of at the time i was like 18 20 then and it was it's just part of everyday life you know it's like i'm sure there's a bunch of mexicans who have eat tacos their whole life and they they don't make tortillas though you know um that's true so i think um yeah i don't know i mean as, as far as like making tacos i think the the way we base the ideas behind any tacos i know that i can never kind of create something that's exactly as it is in mexico because we don't have the same products and stuff so we take the um the basis of everything is is mexican you know you know we'll do a chicken mole taco but we'll you know i think everything probably has our little riff on it i guess too so i guess the answer is just like through reading a lot through books there's uh the, the how i've learned the kind of basics of it all and then as far as tortillas go i just watched hundreds of videos of old Mexican ladies on YouTube making tortillas. <laughs> well, it was it's been a self-taught process then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's I spent about three months just, just on tortillas, just trying to get that really big balloon puff on them, you know, so you have the, the wow. right texture. It's tricky, you know, like, and if you don't get that puff on them, it's the, well, the texture's wrong. <laughs> it's all, it's all wrong. I think it's maybe even a little bit more difficult here because you, 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 you don't get the same products over here. So like when we get masa flour over here, it's already went through transit. Mm. Whereas you can get masa flour in Mexico. That's like, like fresh dried blended flour, like to use within two, three weeks. You just, you, you can't get it here because it would yeah. die in transit. So, you know, we, we kind of work with what we have and what we can do at the time. That, that's what we do and uh, we're gonna go back to the tortillas of course because it's a whole big topic that deserves some more time and just a quick note for the listeners masa means dough so we call the dough that is made with fresh ground uh, corn kernels uh, masa so um, go, going back a bit to the context of, of where you are now uh, which is um, England contrary to popular belief England is a beautifully diverse country with a very rich gastronomic heritage from the many migrant communities that live there yes but also uh, because of its many regional cuisines and excellent produce but like you say you know let's face it I know very well from experience that there are some difficulties when it comes to getting the right ingredients to prepare Mexico food in order to achieve well the very elusive authenticity and just because the British public might not be yet very familiar with traditional Mexican food mm-hmm. uh, obviously you are making a big effort to in a way educate them uh, to recognize and appreciate carefully executed uh, traditional recipes how challenging has it been to build a network of suppliers to outsource your mm-hmm. produce and would you say that the variety and number of such partners um, has increased in the past years? Um, well, we haven't we haven't been going really long enough to see much like a massive enough of a change, I would say. But you know, there's certain things you can't get, like the fresh cactus paddles and mm. like cer- certain chilies for like mole negro and stuff. You just you, you can't get over here at all. But in a way, you know, it just makes you have to adapt what you're doing to what you have around you. 
which I think is, you know, that's what a lot of cuisines do. And that's how a lot of cuisines became anyway. So like we try to grow some of our own chilies and tomatillos when they're in season, but the season's short. It's only about two months over here. We've got some really good seafood and shellfish suppliers in England though. So I try to utilize that quite a bit. We work with some really good Debo suppliers and we, we get our cheese from a woman in London who has a dairy called the Gringa Dairy. Mm-hmm. She makes Mexican cheeses in little small batches. And uh, yeah, got a good dry chili supplier, bean supplier. Uh, mezcals have really started to get quite popular. So we've got quite a few suppliers with really good stock lists of, of artisan mezcals also. And I just I, I was just speaking to a guy uh, yesterday. He's um he's opened a chocolate business in Sheffield. He's doing single origin bean, like bean to bar chocolate. I was uh, speaking to him yesterday and he, he was in Mexico right now, I'm assuming sourcing beans. So uh, hopefully that's something we can be using too. But it's, it's a process. It takes takes, you know, you keep finding new people all the time, you know. So hopefully a year down the road, then you've got some really, really amazing suppliers. Yeah, yeah, of course. There is something that I uh, just actually thinking about that there are many Mexicans in Britain. <laughs> it's uh, We are very underrepresented, yeah. I have to say. I get people coming in all the time saying, like, why aren't you playing Brazilian? <laughs> because we, we play a lot of hip hop at the Taqueria. So uh, they're always like, why are you playing Brazilian music? I'm like, why would I play Brazilian music in the Taqueria? <laughs> um, well, yes, of course. So, you know, just what you're saying just makes me realize that it has to work uh, both ways. Obviously, you know, people from all over the world are relocating England and obviously English people as well who are passionate about Mexican food for whatever reason mm-hmm. and they start sourcing and introducing crops and, you know, like chiles. There's loads of chile farms yeah. now yeah. in Britain. Yeah, there's a quite a few good ones now. Like, But even habaneros, just to get a basic habanero, like an orange habanero. Mm-hmm. I've placed my orders about two weeks in advance for those, you know, so it's, it is still difficult. You know, like, well, it's weird. I mean, even when you grow up in like anywhere in America, you can go and buy fresh tomatillos any time of the year. You can just buy them, you know, like it doesn't, uh, it doesn't exist over here. You can't, you, you can get them in season. We grow our own in season because they're so expensive, like 15 pounds a kilo, wow. 20 pounds a kilo. They're like ridiculously yes. expensive. But there's no reason that they couldn't be grown and it couldn't be a crop that you could just have, you know, and just order. But it's um, it's just because there's not demand for it, you know. So, yeah. So but hopefully things like more people do cooking Mexican food and, and actual Mexican food is, will increase demand. And then we'll start to see that stuff in the yes, coming of years. Course. Well, yeah, you know, it has to come, um, I suppose, from people like yourself who are introducing and educating the public to get used to these new flavors and, and finding ways to to add them to their you know everyday diets as well. Yeah, I mean, I remember how different things were in the food scene yeah, in England. Yeah, yeah. Outside of London, it's not always the best, you know. Um, I, I think London, for me, arguably the best food city in the world. It's amazingly diverse, you know, and there's a lot of very, very good restaurants there. But I can imagine that 20 years ago, it was uh, a very, very different story. Yeah, you're not absolutely different. And I'm talking about London precisely. So never really, yeah. in my wildest dreams, I thought I'd be, you know, talking about tacos from Newcastle yeah. with, with you that come yeah. from America. So, you know, after living in Britain for a number of years now, you as an expert, uh, you have had the chance to experience um, firsthand and also observe. Uh, how different cultures from the many countries that live there interact with each other, which is, you might agree or not, uh, fundamentally different from how diversity uh, is experienced in America. And for a number of historical, cultural and political reasons, um, because, uh, well, you are not Mexican, that doesn't limit your culinary expressions and indeed uh, have made a mm-hmm. huge effort to present it in an authentic way. And that is quite an achievement. But 
how these interactions and social dynamics have changed you as a person and do you think that it has also influenced your approach to traditional food in general and Mexican food in particular? Yeah, I mean, when I took my first head chef job in London, it was at this place in Dalston in East London. It was kind of this little um, pub. The the style of food that I cooked was very international, I would say, probably. I, I think that probably came from a combination of the fact that London's like this massive melting pot and also just having a really large network of friends who I trained with who, who ended up kind of living all over the world. I think that after kind of like 10 to 15 years of cooking in good restaurants, you end up with a, with a really large pool of people working so I think that probably more than anything inspires me in kind of the way that I cook, kind of seeing the paths that everyone has went, you know. I think you need discipline in some way on like when you cook to keep you down uh, the right kind of path. But the, my only rule at Barrio Comida is that uh, when people come in and eat something and they eat it, I want them to say that I'm eating Mexican food, you know. That's why we always worked as a base of everything being Mexican. But then we can kind of let our own... Uh, ideas kind of go a little bit yeah exactly like everything's gonna have your own touch isn't it otherwise you're just playing full-on translator instead of um being a chef i guess you know and and i think you're really nailing something very important the way food researchers uh, have approached traditional food it's can be a bit pinholing things down like you know being a a bit of a purist approach Mm -hmm. and on the other hand uh trained chefs uh can distance themselves too much and not in a good way uh, from authenticity uh, and, mm-hmm. and just yeah, you know, saying, well, you know, I've got the freedom to reinterpret food the way I want, hence all the food chain restaurants you can find uh, in Britain of alleged Mexican food that primarily yeah. sells burritos and just, you know, yeah. literally calling that a Mexican and selling it as, as such when, when it's not. And and I yeah. think it's ideal to find a middle ground. So I think the way you're doing it is really piring in the sense that you can respect the authenticity of a cuisine, but you can also, like you say, give it your own approach to it without disrespecting it. And I think that's that's fundamental. Yeah, totally. I think that respect is a good word for it. I think sometimes when people go a bit wild on things and start doing kind of a lot of fusion food, it, it's probably disrespectful to what they're doing. I mean, I get we get loads of Mexicans coming in and eating. Mm. Like loads of them love it. Well, they keep coming back, you know. So I, I've never said this is going to be a taco exactly like you're going to have it in Mexico City, you know. But they enjoy it and they like it and they, you know, they, it reminds them a bit of home. But it's also they know it's like kind of got my own spin on things a little bit too. And to be honest, it's authenticity as a that's a whole another conversation anyway to talk about that for hours on what is authentic, mm-hmm. you know. Um, if, you, if you're talking like cooking pre-Hispanic Mexican food or, you know, like Veracruz style stuff that's got a huge or stuff with a massive Spanish influence or how, how much would you limit yourself? But at the end of the day, I know I'm not going to be able to cook something that's going to taste exactly as it does in Mexico. So I don't try to cook something that tastes exactly as it does in Mexico. I just try to get something that has the essence of that. And then, but if someone comes in and has a carne asada taco, I want them to eat it and think I'm eating carne asada taco. And if even if they're used to eating them in Mexico, they eat one and they think, yes, it's a carne asada taco, but yeah, it's recognizable. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's recognized. Okay. They understand uh, the translation or, or the slight translation, and, mm-hmm. and it still is what it is in essence. Yeah, and I don't, go, I don't go mad anyway. You know, I just serve like certain things. Like we do our carne asada with like a salsa negra, with that's made with lots of soy and stuff, and like mm-hmm. kind of a nod to that kind of Chinese influence in Mexico, and with grilled onions, and we just use a really good grass-fed beef, and so it's not, you know, it's nothing mad. It's just like, you know, we put 
we serve like pink onions and stuff with a mole, which I know you don't do in Mexico, but just little, like small variations on things, I think, but not uh, nothing crazy. <laughs> well, like you said, you know, uh, you're doing it uh, in, a, in a respectful way, simply presenting it differently. Yeah, yeah. And uh, going back to yeah. carne asada, um, apart from the many delicious items on your menu, including that, of course, uh, which is called grilled uh, steak, another classic like taco de lengua or um, grilled ox tongue. You mm-hmm. have really gone the extra mile and now we are reaching to the tortilla thing. Now, um, you've paired also great tacos with great drinks. And what better than Mexican aguas frescas like horchata and hibiscus? tequilas, cals, like you, you said. But what really thrills me, uh, I have to say, is the fact that you own a proper Lenin machine. Yeah. And uh, I know that many listeners are uh, rising their eyebrows in concern or surprise. But let me tell you that a Lenin uh, is not a renegade Soviet refugee, because that's the other Lenin. This is a top quality tortilla machine. And I'm mm-hmm. sure that it wasn't uh, easy to come by, because it's not like you can just walk into Argos and, <laughs> and request one. Uh, making tortillas from scratch is a very lengthy and complex process. And since you have clearly mastered the technique, um, as you mentioned earlier, why don't you walk the audience uh, through the process of, of um, how tortillas Yes, come to be uh, at Barrio Comida. Yes, well, so just we use masa harina, we use a masaca for for our tortillas due to the fact that we're based in a in quite a small shipping container. And when we imported the tortilla machine, it took about four months to get over here. It was, it was a big rigmarole. But um, we were going to get a grinder at the same time, but we just didn't have we had no space, so we, we can't make our own nixtamal for now. It's something that we'd like to look at doing in the future. But for now, we just we, we use masa harina, which for anyone listening who doesn't know how tortillas are made in general is you'll soak it's not sweet corn it's the starchy flint corn soaked in like in a cowl or, or lime rock solution overnight then ground through a wet mill what comes out of that is your masa or your dough then that can be flash dried and i'm assuming blended which then creates a flour that just needs rehydrating so that's what we use at the taqueria so that just gets hydrated to a certain percentage a little bit of salt in it and then pressed through the tortilla machine and then it's mainly in the cooking of it really that that, that i think is quite important you go on a, a very hot heat at the very beginning to get that kind of blistering all over the top then it gets for just for about 10 to 15 seconds then it gets flipped over onto a, to a cooler side of the grill and you can, you have to get the eye for it but until the you can see it has the right hydration level in it so where there's just enough water left in the dough to create steam but not so much that, that it won't turn into steam and then you flip it again back onto one of the really hot pieces of the griddle and kind of tap it in the middle and it inflates the tortilla so they kind of puff up like a big balloon um, and then they get pulled off and let it sit for a minute or so and then it's it go you can't see my face obviously but I'm smiling all the way <laughs> that it makes me so happy yes well that's pretty much um, the, the, the very precise uh, process to make a tortilla using using a Lenin machine mm-hmm. now um, well, how has the public reacted to to you know real Mexican corn soft tortillas as opposed to the Tex-Mex staple that you normally get in Britain uh, from the Old Paso range and you know shells and, and all that 
what has been the feedback? Mm-hmm. I think most most people like them. It's just most people don't know what they are. I think so. You can see when you put them down. Literally, sometimes with people like oh, you know, like they don't know, like it doesn't look how they're expecting it to look. I think, and also tricky to how to eat. It. We, we get a lot of people in who come in who have ate, like Mexican food or what I call actual Mexican food, um, and and they come in and they're over the moon, you know, because they can have mm-hmm. good tortillas. And you know, I always try to if I've got some tortillas left at the end of the night, try to give them away to people and stuff um, to take home with them because it's not easy to go out and buy them you know but yeah in general in general good people, people like a tortilla you know i'm just thinking how some speciality artisan shops are trying also to educate the public to all sorts of ingredients you know like your friend doing um artisan chocolate you know now people are very keen to organize mm-hmm. events such as tasting teaching people and showing the process have you thought about making like a, a tortilla night where you sort of walk people through the process of a tortilla making and, and get to make a tortilla i mean i'm sure that would be a blast yeah yeah well i I haven't I haven't yet my business partner the other day he was telling me I should do some taco workshops and have some people come in and show them how to do, how to make tacos but yeah I think it's something we we'll probably will do in the future just we haven't we haven't started doing yet I mean it's, to be honest if I probably did that I'd probably teach them all how to hand press because um they're not going to have they're not going to have a lending machine in the house are they so but it's good to know how to hand when we first opened we hand pressed every tortilla for the first month we did it it was an absolute nightmare but it was uh you know but yeah we didn't the machine didn't arrive in time and we needed to open you know we ran out, ran out of money and so we just hand pressed them all but it was it was hard but <laughs> we got there in the end <laughs> I mean, we're small. We're definitely a small restaurant. We're like 30 seats, but it's. I think it's different than if you have a small taqueria with just maybe a couple of seats on a bar. You know, then you can might you can you can hand press them probably, but when you're serving hundreds of them, it's difficult. So, how many tortillas do you make now uh, um, every night? On a busy day, we'll probably do about 400 for lunch and five to 600 wow. for dinner. A thousand. Quite a few. That's a lot. Yeah. But you should definitely start thinking at some point about um, selling tortillas as well. I'm just pushing ideas to you. <laughs> no, we do. I, I'd love to. It's just, I think I'd have to upgrade the machine. I, I, we've got the smallest Lennon that they have now, so it's like the restaurant model. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you were going to go and just start selling, you'd have to get one of the larger models that cooks them too. You know, yeah, like yeah. the ones where they cook, cook and cool them and everything, because otherwise it's just painful you want to see the chefs when they cook when they they have to cook a couple hundred tortillas you know the sweating buckets in front of this big charcoal fire cooking tortillas for two hours well that's, that's authentic mexican food yeah yeah that's proper <laughs> that's for sure if you're not sweating behind it then you're not doing it right yeah yeah <laughs> now uh we're talking about uh corn uh, this might uh, come as a surprise to many of the listeners but uh in Victorian Britain, uh, corn production was really, really large and very profitable. So much so that in Leeds, uh, which is another important northern city uh, in England, uh, a building known as the Corn Exchange was created, uh, which was a corn trade center. And, and this beautiful place um, has now been converted into a small shopping mall. But it, it remains mm. to be, you know, culturally and historically significant. I know now that, that you use flour to make your masa. Uh, but mm-hmm. just because, you know, those are the, the needs you have, would it be possible at some point for you to source uh, the right kind of variety of corn to make your tortillas? Or would you have to import that as well? We, we wouldn't be able to get it from England. You would have to import it. But I think you, you, you'd you want to anyway. Um, it's kind of, that's it's plan two. For, we opened Barrio on, uh, 
I just maxed out a couple of credit cards, you know, so it'd be open very, very cheaply and with nothing. And we've just kind of let it grow organically. And so if it gets to a point where there's enough of the demand and there's enough people that want it and stuff and we can move into a brick and mortar and like an actual building, then phase two of that would be would be grinding corn and stuff um there's a taquery in london called el pastor and they um they grind corn and they get the creole corn um so like i think it's like a it's, do you know do you know creole corn yeah so it's like an older variety isn't it or something it's not like um yeah yeah, yeah. it's a heritage it's a yeah. heritage corn yeah. yeah yeah obviously it's able you can put you can get it over here so it's just um you'd have to set up supply chains and stuff for that so maybe maybe partnering with that with a farmer yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i mean that's all uh it's all to come hopefully you know i have to say that knowing all these other side and, and being able to share it with the world as well of of uh how food comes to be and how mexican food travels in the world having voices like yours on the show uh, really underlines one of the core aspects of the work i do through um my magazine sabor and and of course the show and and well you know for far too long it has been those who prepare food uh with diligence and passion and like you say, smashing credit cards, <laughs> who, who feed us after a long holiday that surprises with ingenious and delicious mm-hmm. creations from, from the chefs in whites like yourself to the restaurant kitchen troops, the diligent home cooks. Um, you all are the invisible heroes, uh, that not only keep us fed, fueled and happy, but also are responsible for documenting and transmitting the culinary heritage of the world and um, and for that we celebrate you i celebrate you uh, certainly yes. <laughs> now um we're almost reaching the end of of the interview but i would like to explore a little bit more about your experience uh, as a chef now uh, considering that you uh, really don't only sell tacos uh, but you sell a chance to mm-hmm. uh, for people to spend a great time with their friends to romance over delicious food and give your patrons a slice of good times uh, with a good side of guacamole, of course. Which have been, call it the, the three most important moments in your life as a chef uh, that you have gone, yes, like this is why I love doing this. Like this is the payoff, you know, like three epiphanies of sorts. Uh, and um, and why have they been so so significant for you? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's kind of, it's hard to think of like kind of three individual times when that's, you know, I, I think I enjoy cooking every day. Um, so every day in a way. To, yeah. I think there was a time when I was working at this restaurant in, um, in London called St. John. Um, and, uh, it was also, it was the first kitchen that I worked in that was an open kitchen. And so I, I remember kind of for, for the first time, you kind of seeing like joy and happiness on customers' faces when they were like, when they were eating in the restaurant, dining in the restaurant. We would do these big kind of feasting menus where we do whole suckling pigs. And you'd, you'd kind of carry them all out to the table and then drop them down in the middle and you'd carve the head off and then put the head to the person who's, who's the part, like the leader of the party table and kind of seeing how much pleasure you can give people through, um, food and, and not just food, but also showing people like kind of genuine care and attention to their needs. I think that made a big, made a big impact on me. And so that, you know, we've got a, the kitchens open at Barrio Comida and I don't think I would work in a closed kitchen again for that reason because i think that's important to have that connection between the person who's cooking your food and the person who's eating the food mm-hmm. so all the sh- all the chefs at barrio comida we cook all the tacos but we also serve all the tacos and we take all the food out to people oh, okay. so, to have to have that connection you know, in many there. ways um some personality traits in in every cook that does out of real passion is because uh they're nurturers at heart yeah totally 100 percent. i when i was a kid i used to think i wanted to be a waiter <laughs> when i grew up 
because I used to love, uh, my mom would make little things, you know, like little, uh, canapé things or whatever. And I would always walk around at a party and hand them out to everyone. I just liked seeing people eat things and be happy, you know? And then obviously that I didn't become a waiter, I became a chef instead. But I think that's why chefs sometimes when you take it so hard, when, when you have bad reviews or people that don't have a good time and don't enjoy it because we're not in it for monetary gain. It's, it's, it's not a very good trade to be in if that's why you're in it. But if you're in it, because you want to see people happy, then if you can do that, that's your, yeah, that's your payoff. I can relate 200% to that, obviously. But it's about, uh, you know, providing a, a fantastic moment in everyday life. Yeah. Well, it's all about the little things, isn't it? Life, I think. They, you know, even in the worst economic crises, people, sometimes restaurants thrive even more because it, you know, it's the little things when to, to, to make your day, you know, and make you forget about what's, what else is going on and what's bad in the world. Absolutely. You can kind of just have a couple tacos and have a tequila and enjoy yourself yeah, for a couple yeah. hours. Obviously, you know, depending on the region, but now they have, they can have tacos. Before that, they would just um, have yes. a good old cup of tea <laughs> to bring that comfort. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a pint. Maybe a Maybe pint. A pint. And we all know it's not just one. Yeah. Now, well, I would like to know which plans have you got ahead? Any special events? You know, the year is coming to an end. Are there any upcoming surprises at Barrio Comida, pop-up events or seasonal catering plans? Yeah, um, I think we'll try to do a Day of the mm-hmm. Dead thing in the beginning of November for that. I think through Christmas too, we'll be trying to like put some tamales on the menu and stuff. Looking to try to do some guest chefs nights where we're trying to line some people up too to do that. Yeah, there's plenty of things coming in the next oh, couple of months. Oh, that sounds very exciting. Spice up your menu, of course. Exactly. Excuses. Excuses to drink tequila. Well, it's not like we need many, <laughs> but yes, of course. Well, for all the listeners in the northeast of England, how can they contact you? Maybe someone wants to make, I don't know, a themed party. Uh, are you available for private uh, catering events? Um, uh, yeah, we've done we've done a couple of kind of wedding functions and stuff like that where um, we've done tacos for people in the nighttime, which works really well. Something a bit different than a pork roast. I think best way to contact us is probably just via the website, which is barriocomida.com. And of course, if you happen to go to Newcastle, head to the Quayside and at Weasley Square and get yourself some good tacos. And now we, we've come to the end, uh, Sean, but I really appreciate you being here. I know you're really busy, but it's been uh, a big pleasure to have you on Positive Potley. Thanks. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Sean. And amigos, uh, stay tuned. We'll return after this brief break. Day or night, the busy streets of Mexico's towns and cities are constantly buzzing with music, people, and the delicious smells that emanate from an unimaginable and amazing range of foods, snacks, and drinks. The fall issue of Sabor, This is Mexican Food, celebrates the world-famous Mexican street food and the cultural value of the nation's rich and ethnically diverse cooking traditions. With more than 16 emblematic recipes from the Grand Mexican Street Food Repertoire and five in-depth articles exploring the memorable stories of immigration and entrepreneurship, of family recipes and shared cultures to inspire you making a delicious cultural feast. 
To know more about the wonderful articles and recipes to bring the irresistible Mexican street food into your kitchen, please go to hazachipotle.com forward slash magazine. Take Sabor with you on all your digital devices. Go to pazdesipotle.com forward slash magazine and get ready to cook, learn, and enjoy Mexican food like you never imagined. Thank you for listening. The next episode of the show will air on November 6th. You can find all the links mentioned in this episode on the description of the show, including the link to subscribe to my newsletter. Rating the show on your podcast provider like iTunes or Stitcher and leaving a review really helps this program reaching more people and deliver more of the food stories you love and enjoy. To find more information about this project, please go to pasachipotle.com. Find the show on Twitter as Chipotle Podcast. Well, that's it for this week. Goodbye from me, my friends. Until the next time.